0: As brilliant and accomplished as she is, and yes, she really is, my guest today, Jacqueline Bussy, acknowledges that it took the sudden and tragic death of her best friend and husband, Matt, to help her to unlearn the cultural traps of overwork and of equating self-worth with productivity. In this poignant and delightful conversation, Jacqueline speaks of friendship as her highest calling and of leaning into the long and anguished process of being reborn in the years since Matt's death. She also speaks of embracing the importance of rest in seeking justice and in simply being a person, another important, crucial calling. She asks and invites us to ask ourselves, what if I left behind all the titles and Everything else, and just allowed myself to love and be loved, would it be enough? I'm Chris Johnson, welcoming you to listen for her answer and to listen internally for your own in this episode of Pause, Purpose, Possibility. Dr. Jacqueline Bussey is an award winning author, professor, public theologian, and student of life in all its messy beauty, as well as a much-sought-after speaker and workshop facilitator. You can find more information about her three books, including the most recent, Love Without Limits, in the show notes to this episode. Jacqueline's favorite things to do are to walk on the beach, read good books, ride in the front car of roller coasters, spend time with dear friends, and travel to any place she's never been before. Thanks for listening. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. I'm really excited for this conversation.
0: Uh, as am I. I'm am just thrilled and honored and incredibly grateful that you are willing to hang out with me in this way. I have so enjoyed you and your work and your wisdom and your humor, your grace, uh, so many things about you over the years. So this is a real treat.
1: Mm-hmm. Likewise, likewise. Thank you.
0: So you may recall that the tagline for this little podcast uh, is exploring meaning and connecting with true self so i use that as a springboard to ask you how you would like to introduce yourself to the folks who are listening uh what do you know about your own true self what do you want folks listening in to know about who your true self is
1: Well, I love that question, Chris, and I've even been trying to think lately about how we can define ourselves differently and define ourselves, identify ourselves aside from what we do, right?
0: Yes, yes. I've been
1: thinking a lot lately about how we are human beings and not human doings. Mm -hmm. So see, I was tempted when you asked the question to start talking about the things that I do, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're trained to define ourselves in such a way, but- I think I'm going to start somewhere else, if that's okay, because I am really making a conscious effort these days to not not define other people by what they do or define myself in, the, in, the, in that way. So I would say that one of the things about myself I want everyone to know is that um, I am a friend to many people. And I take friendship as probably one of my highest callings in my life at this time. And... I used to joke doing interfaith work. I would say, I'm a professional friend maker, you know, Mm. and and I think, I think that's true, but I'm also just a friend to many people and many people are a friend to me. And, and that's just been so meaningful aside from that. Right. I am trying to uh, be a good person. I am a writer. I am a public speaker. Those are things that I that I do, that I like to think flow out of the fact that I'm trying to befriend myself, befriend the world in the best ways that I know how. So I I am a writer and public speaker. I've been a professor um, practically my whole career, 20 years of teaching in Christian higher ed, and I've really enjoyed that as well. And um, just lately, I've been Working on becoming a more introspective person and doing more with the with with the writing and the and the reading and the sharing and just the being <laughs> and the and the resting. So I could talk more about that later, but that's kind of my intro uh, to me.
0: Thank you for that. Picking up one of the threads there, where you talk about yourself as a friend to many. I count myself blessed to be able to say Jacqueline is my friend. So thank you for that. What, uh, who would you say comes to mind and heart as someone who has been a model for you of friend of what friendship is or looks like, or consists of who did you learn that from?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is such a great question. You know, I think I would have to say, um, my late husband, Matt, Ah. he was my best friend since age 14, Chris. And, um, He recently died tragically and totally unexpectedly. And the the only real answer to your question though, is who was the truest friend to me? It was him, completely him. And he uh, was, is, you know, this incredible human. And I had never before, uh, apart from my own mother, I would say had someone who was a greater champion for me. He Mm. was my compass. He was my revolution. He was in the, as every friend of mine said, they're like, your husband is in the front row of everything you're doing with the biggest smile on his face. You know, you think of how important it is in a partnership to have someone who is um, your champion and is not competitive with you. And I, I had that hundred percent as everyone could attest. And I appreciated it for what it was. And so I would have to say in large part, I learned that from him, you know, Uh, we, we we also were the type of friends to each other that we would have arguments, you know, as people do, like as anyone does, who I think is in a long-term marriage, like we were. And we also, it's cliche, but true that we would not let the sun set on any of our arguments. And we actually never, ever did. As miraculous as that sounds, and I think that was the key, was that we learned the importance of the apology. The apology is the key to a good marriage and we both were willing to do it. And that's the key to good friendship, I think, is that you have to see where you've screwed up and you have to apologize. And the other person also has to be like, that is enough. It is enough for me that you have apologized with a sincere heart and now we can let it go. And, And I think I have had... I was loved like that. You know, that's the kind of love that I've had in my life. And I consider that a miracle and it's made me different. I think I can walk out of my house. I used to always say when Matt was alive, like I walk out of my house as a loved person and that makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because he's gone, Yeah. but I have to say, Chris, I have to still believe it because of the many friends I've had, the friends who've stepped in since he died and who have been there for me in ways you could never even dream or imagine. I feel like I still have to say at the end of the day, I still walk out of my house as a loved person. And I still have to allow that to make all the difference in how I treat other people.
0: You spoke just then Jacqueline about, some of the ways that you are different because of your friendship and love from Matt and with Matt. How would you say you are different now in the absence of Matt?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's a profound question. And I think to answer it, honestly, I'd have to start Chris by saying, I'm still discovering the answer to that question. Yeah. Right. Matt has only been gone for two years. And I say only because when you've known someone for 38 and they're yes. your best friend for 38, two years is, is, is so small. Yes. And so I'm still discovering the answer to your question, but there's things that I have learned. And I think one of the first things I've learned that might be helpful, hopefully, or at least of interest to our listeners would be that um, my priorities are completely radically changed by this. I think when you watch your beloved die in front of your face, unexpectedly, they weren't sick. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't let that change you, I think there's something wrong. I think there's something wrong, right? And so I've decided to just lean into the process of being reborn, which is what's happening to me now. And a friend helped me wrap words around that the other day because I said, I just feel like I'm gestating, you Uh know, like like I'm not the same person and I'm not, I'm not the same person. And one of the things that has really struck me is just the ways it's in what, the way I just introduced myself, that whole thing I just said, you know, about like, I'm not just the things I do. Okay. That's completely not the Jacqueline Bussy uh, <laughs> of five years ago. I would have uh, said, well, I'm a professor and I'm a writer and I do this and I do that. I would have never started with friendship. Right. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I start with that now is because when my husband died in that way, my friends saved my life. And- uh-huh. See, so I I have the, I mean, I'm fortunate that Matt and I were a couple that always made space for friends. You know, I think there are couples who kind of get a little insular and, you know, Matt and I used to we at least once a week have friends over for dinner and it was very countercultural in the Midwest where we lived. And because a lot of people wouldn't have you over, but we just persisted. But then some of our friends, we got closer with them, then they would invite us into their homes and we would always get back into the car, Chris. And Matt would always say in this cute voice, he'd say, we have friends, like, <laughs> And it became like our mantra, like friends, you know? So we were the couple that always had the big parties every month, you know, and 60 people were coming and weekly dinner parties with friends. And so I see now the value of that. Does that make sense? I mean, obviously I saw the value then, but now I see that when your life falls apart and you lose your beloved, you don't have anyone else, but your friends. And one of the things that I just want to share... And then I'll stop talking because I tend to have really long answers to questions, <laughs> you know, but I'll I just say quickly is that one of the major ways I've changed, Chris, is the value that I now place on friendship, as I said, but also rest.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Rest and calling out our culture on the absurdity of overwork that we engage in because my husband and I, we were guilty of that. We worked very high-powered jobs. He was a Hollywood movie producer. you know, I was a, um, you know, director of the Forum on Faith and Life at Concordia College. Then I was the executive director of the Collegeville Institute. you know, so I've had these power, you know, kind of positions. He had, you know, very powerful position. and we worked all the time. I, I mean, I, I wish I could sit here and tell you, oh, we didn't work 90hour work, work weeks. It's a lie. We did. We loved what we did. We did it because it was our vocation. It was our passion. It was our purpose. But I don't know. I'm having to reevaluate all that because I think it's possible to, in a in a very capitalistic society, right, yes. Yes. give away too much to the job because we're told, oh, well, that's your vocation. You know, that's your calling. Right. You know what else is your calling? Being a person. Is a calling. Being there for your family, being there for your spouse, also a calling. Yet we spend how many hours a week on that? Very few. Like your average person. I mean, we're working. I mean, just look at the ratio. You work five days, you have two days off. Well, all I can tell you is I wish that my husband and I had had more. Yeah. And so now I treat that very, very differently. I um, put the highest priority on time off (laughs) and when i say time off it really is time on you know it's time to actually (laughs) live you know we are not a means of production we are not just a paycheck we are not just a job and i say that as someone who always loved her job deeply so to hear me say that is wow right you know because i I don't know we just have to have more time to just be and rest and i want to put a huge plug in For the book, Rest is Resistance by Tricia Hersey, which I read recently, and um, I have allowed it to change my life. Rest is resistance. You are not just your labor. Your labor does not define you.
0: What's your intuition, uh, your understanding of why it is that we have become so obsessed with work or that the conventional way of introducing yourself is in terms of what you do, as you acknowledged earlier, where does that come from? What are the what are the deep and insidious roots of that in our culture? do you think?
1: Yes, yes. well, I what I think, is deeply informed by the people I read, which is Tricia Hersey, right? I'm going to come back to her for a second, because she says, Chris, that the answer to your question is the plantation. Oh my. Yes. So her argument is, and, you know, we, you know, anyone listening, you can take it or leave it, but it certainly is a fascinating one. And I believe she's right personally. Her argument is that where that gets started in our culture and why we have so much less rest than say Argentina, which has a siesta every afternoon, right? Sure, you know? yeah. Even uh, France, right? Where all the stores close from one to three and the kids come home from school to have lunch with their parents every day, right? I mean, like these things are, I've lived in these cultures, right? And, and it's unfathomable compared to ours. And I always felt bereft when I came back to the United States yes. from living elsewhere because of this Patricia Hersey's argument is where do you think that comes from there's an answer for that and her answer is enslavement wow. that it is on the plantations of the United States where the idea gets born that people's value is determined mm. by their production
0: mm-hmm. okay
1: okay and so when you think about that ooh, I remember reading that and you like you want to argue against it right you want to be like that can't be and then you're like, "Oh, but it does make sense. Doesn't it? You know, if you've ever lived in another culture and you've seen the way that people are not defined by their production, you know, when I lived in France and my French host sisters are coming home from school for a two hour lunch, my mind was blown. Yeah. I was like, wait, what are we doing? Like, you know, like we're having then a dinner, we're having a three hour dinner, right. You know, because you savor the food, you, you know, you, you savor the company, you savor the conversation. And I was like, I'm used to like eating, you know, dinner over my email, lunch over my email at work and like going straight. I'm working. It's a work yeah. lunch, you know, yeah. like yeah. it's an email lunch. You know, like that, that, there are cultures that don't live this way. So your question, Chris, is brilliant because we do have to ask what makes us different. And the voices of color that I've been reading um, have been teaching me that what makes us different is a pretty sad, sad, tragic legacy that the that got rooted with the origin of the nation doesn't mean we can't overcome it. We can totally overcome it is also their argument. You don't have to live this way. You know, I start every talk that I give these days, Chris, I say, how many of you are exhausted? <laughs>
0: yeah. And
1: I wish I could tell you that every single person in that room doesn't raise their hand. Right. But every time they do, we cannot continue to live this way. Something is wrong. I have been so exhausted since my husband died. And this is how I've tapped into it, seeing that like, I can't live this way. You know, typical employers, you get like what one week off for bereavement. One week off, yeah, a yeah. beloved dies and that's what you get. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Like that, it's not enough. You, No one, no sane person who really loved someone can actually recover in that amount of time.
0: And so, was it, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Was it earlier this fall in one of the sessions at Holden Village where you were the presenter that the point was raised, maybe you raised it, that the, what do they call The American Psychological Association- Yeah,
1: that was me. I raised has, it. Yes.
0: Okay. Has determined recently that grief that lasts more than a year- is a disorder. Am I am I re- recalling that correctly? You
1: have got it. Yes, you've got it. Absolutely oh. right. I think it was March of 2022. Um, uh, the Americans that the APA came out with ABA, Yeah, okay. And it's called, what did I, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what they call it, but it's something like prolonged grief disorder. Wasn't mm. that it, Chris? Um, yeah. Something,
0: yes. Yeah. Something to that effect, right?
1: Yeah. And remember how everybody in the room like gasped. Yes, like, yes, that and it stuck like an with actual, me. Yeah, an actual disorder. Yeah. that I would still be sad and not just me, of course, but I use that example of myself. Yeah. I would still be sad a year after losing the love of my life. It's a, that's a yeah. disorder. We call yeah. that a disorder. And there's many, many cultures that would not. And right. we need to understand that. Right. So.
0: So. The thread of this conversation has just now made a, a connection between the importance of rest and the, necessity, inevitability of grief, uh, which is powerful to name, what else is rest good for? Why is it important?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, personally, I think that rest is important because it does allow for a reconnection, a reconnection Uh with the inner wisdom that lives inside of each one of us the wisdom that is greater than each one of us, you know, you know, in so many indigenous cultures, Oh, you're going to love this. I just remembered this. Okay. And I have a lot of native friends and they teach me awesome things all the time. And uh, one of the things that my friend was teaching me was that, you know um, he was saying like, when you're, when you wake up in the morning, like what does someone ask you? And I was like, Oh, well, what do you want for breakfast? (laughs) You know, it's kind of (laughs) like the conversation that, you know, my parents would have when I was waking up. And my friend was explaining, and he's Ojibwe, and he was saying, you know, oh, well, in my culture, you know, one of the things we might ask when you wake up is what did you dream? Oh, wow. And and I thought literally no one ever asked me that. Like, you know, no, no one ever is like the first thing that you would ask a child, you know, or an adult is what did you dream? but I do think it's essential, right? Because, and Trisha Hersey talks about just also getting in touch with our dream lives as well, that, you know, there's a whole, I'm going to use that literally and metaphorically, right? Mm -hmm. How do you get in touch with your dreams if you don't rest and figure out what they are? We are so busy. Like, I don't even know like which end of me is coming and going most days and no more. I'm done with that life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like Matt's death, has shown me that I can't live that way anymore. Matt and I live that way for a long time. Um, and I'm done with it, you know? And so any way that we can reconnect with our, with ourselves, with one another, we reconnect with those we love. We reconnect with God. We reconnect with our memories. I think I don't want to make rest out to be a panacea for all ills, but like, we're so overworked. We're so overtired. It's affecting everything. And it's like with Matt's death, Chris, I've now got these, my eyes are opened. I'm seeing something that I never saw. And what I'm seeing is the effect of the fatigues on us. And I'm seeing its origins in some really tragic places of of white supremacy, quite frankly. I think that's where yeah. it gets going. Yeah.
0: And what you named before about the just pervasive, uh, corrosive effect on a person's and a, and a families and a communities, a cultures' uh, soul, so to speak, of uh, identifying—I'll speak for myself—identifying or or rooting my sense of worth, of value, in productivity or even more specifically in financial reward. Yes. Uh, So I've been trying to, well, even the phrase, make a living uh, for the last 10 years as a freelancer, consultant, facilitator, traveling teacher, discernment coach, so on and so on, Uh, which I love. I love the work. In many ways, it isn't work. It is about just me showing up and being who I am in the world, and hoping that there is some gift for someone in there. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's nice to get paid for being who I am, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. and that doesn't happen much. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going with that, though, Jacqueline, is to acknowledge uh, again how corrosive and con- persistent uh, my sense of self as failure. Is because I don't have a regular, consistent, uh, comfortable paycheck uh, in compensation for my work. And that narrative comes from somewhere. Thank you for helping me to get a sense of some of the roots of where that narrative comes from. And it has been part of my new or my more recent chapter of life's work inner life's work is to let go of that narrative or reframe it or come up with a different way of rooting grounding my own sense of why i matter uh and and that is hard and i think good and necessary and important work so a little true confession there thank you for letting me toss that in
1: yes oh it's very powerful thank you for sharing that
0: uh if i can springboard from that and draw on ask you to draw on your wisdom as human being as friend as teacher educator so on uh given the little snapshot that i just showed you of my own life a little bit of it what would you say i most need to unlearn and how might i do that or how might anybody uh unlearn whatever it is that traps them in overwork traps them in equating self-worth with productivity so on and so on uh what needs to be unlearned and how can that
1: happen Mm. wow well first of all i just want to thank you for the vulnerability that you shared in sharing what you shared. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just want to say, you're kind of my personal hero for having done what you did. I've <laughs> tracked your, tracked your career, you know, since you left the more traditional higher ed realm that I had been in. Um, and I just have so much admiration that you were willing to do that and to just show up in the world as you. And I really hear you when you say the part about the paycheck, right? That that. I know that my entire life I've been defined by the paycheck too. So so I have to qualify what I'm about gonna answer you for the unlearning to say that I'm unlearning it myself. Does that make sense? Like I am yeah, not sure. yet. Yeah. I'm not speaking from a place of I've unlearned it, right? I am in the process of the unlearning alongside you. So I just wanted to admit that with all genuine humility. So the other day. And I was thinking, I was staring out at the lake and I, and I had this question that came into my mind. And the question was essentially, what if I left behind all the fancy titles, the big paychecks or the medium paychecks, whatever, you know, what if I, what if I didn't care anymore about the fancy titles after my name? And what if I just allowed myself to love and be loved, allowed myself to write and be written, and allowed myself to hear and be heard? Would it be enough Mm -hmm. just to love and be loved? And I think that that question that beautifully and spiritually, I was asking myself just two days ago, Chris, while not knowing at all what you were going to ask me today for this podcast, is the same question that you're asking about what do I need to learn, right? In my case, I have to unlearn the approval that I have always gotten from other people for Oh, you know, you wrote this book. It won an award. You're this professor. People call you doctor, you know, whatever it is for for you or, you know, for anyone.
0: Yeah.
1: We all have our things, right? We have that thing that we feel like makes other people respect us. And because of the society we live in, it does. Like yeah. that's real, you know, but what we have to unlearn is caring. <laughs> you know, my um, husband used to say, he said, you just have to divorce care from the situation, he always talked about divorcing care in a situation where care was not deserved, and he was good at it, and I was awful. <laughs> I'm awful. I'm awful at it. Huh. He could just allow something to like water off a duck's back. Like if it's if if a person who was rude said something rude to my husband, he was like divorce care. And he was over it in five oh. seconds. I'm like walking around ruminating, you know, like, why did they say that? Why don't they like me? Like, <laughs> you know, but listen, I've learned from him because now I'm more like, Ooh, let me think about, does that actually matter? You know, and, and by asking myself that question, is it enough just to love and be loved and to hear and be heard and to write and be written? I asked myself, this is this enough? Because I think deep down, I know that it is.
0: Yes, right. Mm.
1: I know that it is. And how do I know that it is? I'm sorry this is going to sound cliché and I promise it's actually not. I know that it is because I watched Matt die. Oh. And oh. I know that no one cared about his title, you know, or his paycheck. Yes. No one cares. You know, instead, I have all the people who wrote to me after he died. And every single one of them told me a beautiful story of something he had done for them. And I keep all those as a treasure.
0: So you've peppered the conversation, which has just been radiant so far. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With this word love. And as much as we've just said that we're not defining ourselves by our work and so on, one of the things that you have gifted to the world is a book called Love Without Limits. Uh, So very open invitation here. In this setting, what is the deal with love? What is the relationship between love and justice, love and anger, love and forgiveness, love and friendship? Um, What is on your heart and mind to share with these good folks listening in about love?
1: Mm. Thank you for the question. Yeah, I have to say of all the things that I've done that I'm okay defining myself by is that writing is actually one of them, okay. right? And in particular, okay. writing Love Without Limits because, you know, writing for me is just, is sharing my heart. It's just, here's my heart on the page. I gift it to you, right? And any mm. any of my um, half half attempts at cleaning wisdom, you know, um, that's, that's what that book is. And it is a book that I wrote during- um, the election year of 2016 and into 2017 and so it was a year when was we all remember and unfortunately the legacy of that lives on when we were Mm. just all tearing tearing each other apart you know over differences and um getting caught up in in our differences and having a lot of hate across difference which we're still doing unfortunately Mm -hmm. in polarized Mm -hmm. nation and so for me I was like, Oh no, what can I do about this? What can I do? I feel like people have stopped talking to one another and people are becoming so, you know, hateful and angry. And I thought, well, I can write about love. I'm a writer. It's the one small thing I can offer the world. So that's where the book um, had its first origins. And now it has come out, you know, in a second, a -hmm. second edition more recently, just last year. But I guess I would say there, Chris, that Somebody the other day, I, I I speak on the book all the time and I was just speaking last month and it was so fun because there was, I was doing a women's retreat and a woman raised her hand in the front row. And, you know, we talked about love all day, right? You know, cause it was love without limits. That was the whole theme, you know, for the retreat. And she goes, what is love? Well, how would you define yeah. it? And I yeah. laughed because like you just asked me that too, but most people don't like, we all assume that we know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like when we say it and that we have the same definition. And of course we probably don't, but she challenged me, but it was interesting because in the moment I real, I, I was, I had to answer. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. hundreds of people looking at me like, well, what's her, she's writes about love. What's her definition. I realized I don't even think I'd define it, you know, in the book, but I realized that I knew the definition. Hmm. And I remember that I said to her, I said, I paused and I said, I think love is unconditional commitment to another person's flourishing. Mm-hmm. And and then I said to her, I said, and I only know that because I'm remembering how my husband loved me. Yeah. Wow. I'm remembering how my mother who has also died loved me. I'm remembering how my adopted dad and mentor who has also died, loved me. And I think I'm one of those people, It was just weird because I'm not old, you know, I mean, I'm semi old, I'm middle-aged, you know, but the people who have loved me best in life are gone. They've died. Yeah. yeah. And I have nothing if I don't say, what did they teach me, you know, and what they taught me is what I just said. Because they taught me that that's what love does. That love is verb, you know, it's not a noun. Mm -hmm. Love is a verb. And what it does is unconditionally commit you to, to that person's flourishing. So I've always loved to, when you asked me something about like, I forget what you said. Oh, the relationship between love and justice. I'm very passionate about this. Super, super passionate. And my absolute favorite quote on this comes from cornell west and he says justice is what love looks like in public yeah yeah and i heard him say that in person Uh yeah so i don't know where he wrote it but i just know he said it you know justice is what love looks like in public yes it it is it is and so making that deep connection Mm. between if we seek justice for people who might be different from ourselves, we're doing that out of love, because we could easily be selfish and say, "That's not my community. That's not my identity. That's not me. Why would I have to take a stand for that?" You know. And it's like, well, of course you do, because that's what love does. And I think my life has also taught me is it will cost you. It costs mm-hmm. you to do that. Like love costs. It costs you because when the person you love dies, it leads to grief. It costs you because when you fight for justice in the public square and you put that love out there and you put skin on it and policy on it, people are pissed. You know, they're mad because they're losing some type of privilege that they had appreciated that now they feel like you're coming after when really all you're seeking is equity. Right. But when some people had privilege and then you take away their privilege That to them, or you share that privilege, I should say, really, what you're really trying to do is just share the same privileges with everyone, right? That's what equity is actually looking for. But it feels like, oh, no, you know, it feels like um, to the people who'd always been on top, feels like they lost something.
0: I think this will be my last question before we wind down. Um, You mentioned early on in in talking about the book that uh, it came through you into the world at a time when the world was really breaking up and that there was so much division and hatred and so on and so on. And we've acknowledged that that continues. These are really divisive, painful, hurtful, broken times uh, you and I also share a history in working with folks around the notion of vocation, calling, showing up as who you are in response to the needs and hungers of the world. So so with all of that, what's a few minutes uh, that you can share with folks? How can people find or discover or live into their own ways of contributing in the world that needs them to be who they are, mm. whether or not that happens to take the shape of, you know, paid work and productivity and all those things we mentioned before. That's
1: right. And it might, but it might not. Right,
0: right, right. right. So what comes to mind and heart around that sense of uh, just whoever might be listening to this, uh, how can folks tap into, discover, name, claim, live into how they themselves can contribute to a world that needs them to be who they are.
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, I love, first of all, just your emphasis on that the world absolutely needs each and every one of us Mm. to be ourselves. We don't need any more replicas, right? (laughs) (laughs) We don't need that. And so realizing that I think is, is a great, great gift. Um, The gift of you, the gift of you. How do we, how do we lean into the gift yes. Gift of ourselves? I, I yes. love, I love just the, the way you phrased the question. So I start with that. I think my preliminary answer is that we have to carve, and it, this is just so consistent with what I've been saying. Sorry. So I feel yeah. right. But I believe that we have to find the time and the space. We have to be intentional about know. finding it to go deep, I call it going deep down. Like, and I and I say that for going deep down within myself. Yes, yes. To to figure out what is it that I would do, right? If what my parents wanted me to do was not a factor. I'm saying that for my students. You know, like <laughs> my yes. parents are gone. But you know, but like I, I sometimes ask my students to go deep down within, you know, and like what. What was is something that you've always wanted to do? I love to talk about. Oh, you'll appreciate this. I love to ask people, "What is a goal that gives you goosebumps?" <laughs> yeah. And then people will often be like, "Oh, blah blah blah," you know. And they'll tell, and I and I always say, you know, my goal when I was young, when I was like six, uh, the goal that gave me goosebumps was people would say, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I would say, an authoress. Oh, because I thought that like authors were boys, you know, <laughs> prince and princess, author and authoresses And, you know, the thought of being a princess made me gag, but the thought of being <laughs> authoress gave me goosebumps.
0: Yes. yes. And
1: I lost sight of my dream, Chris. I lost sight um... of it. And my first book did not come out until I was, I think, oh my gosh, I want to say 37 years old. Right. And I was like, and and I got this invitation from my publisher and it called me author and I started crying. Uh-huh. I remembered my dream. So rather than waiting as long as I have, although it's never too late, I, I do just ask, you know, everyone listening to say to themselves, what is a goal that I always have had or have had at any point that gives me goosebumps? It doesn't matter if it's small. Maybe you've always wanted to like paint take a painting class maybe you've always wanted to learn how to dive off a diving board I don't care what it is right you know or maybe it's that dream job maybe it's all of the above but whatever it is like I want you to go down deep find one goal that gives you goosebumps and I promise you that pursuing that goal is gonna give you so much satisfaction not a goal that's gonna give someone else goosebumps you yeah you, only you. Goosebumps are like a message, a clue from the universe. You are on to something. You are becoming you. So pursue a goal that gives you goosebumps.
0: You've just given me some, so thank you. <laughs> uh, and thank you for being you as author, uh, as teacher, as friend as someone who does radiate love in the world uh and knows what love what's the cornell west love
1: oh justice is what love looks like in public in public yes Mm
0: -hmm. uh yes you are all of that and i'm deeply grateful thank you so much for being here today
1: thank you so much chris i'm grateful for you
0: As always, we invite you to continue to reflect on what you've encountered in this episode by leaving you with a few questions and a practice or action step to take with you. First, the questions. What if you were to allow yourself to love and be loved? What is a goal or dream you have for your life that gives you goosebumps? and a practice. Look for and make at least one opportunity each day this week to rest, and embrace it as a form of resistance to grind culture, a way to reconnect with the wisdom that's within you and around you. I'm Chris Johnson, with deep thanks for joining us for this episode of Pause, Purpose, and possibility, and for your being who you are in and for the world.